Anyone who has been listening to this podcast for any period of time knows that Judy Bloom is one of our absolute queens. And if you're new to SSR, I will just tell you right now, Judy Bloom is one of our queens. On today's episode, we turn our attention to a book that's a little different for Judy Bloom. Then again, maybe I won't. This book feels different because it falls into a collection of teenager coming-of-age slash puberty books, but features a boy as a main character, unlike in, for example, Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret. 13-year-old Tony Miglioni plays the hero in this novel, published in 1971. After Tony's family hits it big financially thanks to his father successfully selling one of his inventions, they move from their working-class Italian-American neighborhood in Jersey City to upscale Rosemont, New York, where Tony quickly befriends his wealthy neighbor, Joel Huber. Joel seems polite and well-mannered, but he is not what he appears. For one thing, he has a serious shoplifting problem, which triggers Tony's nervous stomach. But you know who is what they appear? Joel's big sister, Lisa, with whom Tony develops quite the obsession. He becomes so obsessed, in fact, that he starts watching her in her bedroom window with a pair of binoculars. I know, creepy. As Tony navigates his new social life in Rosemont, he's also dealing with his changing body and the changes wrought on his extended family by the move to a more privileged environment. As you're about to find out, this book covers a lot of ground. On episode 133, my guests and I discuss Then Again, Maybe I Won't in relation to books like Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, and as a supplement to other forms of sex ed. We talk about how much we love the portrayal of Tony's family, especially his grandmother, who lost her ability to speak after a bout with cancer. We chat about how cool it was that Judy Bloom chose to explore puberty from this perspective, as well as topics like mental health and anxiety back in 1971. And we go in on our complicated feelings about Tony's peeping Tom tendencies and how they are resolved, or not, at the conclusion of the story. We also find ways to draw parallels between Then Again Maybe I Won't and both Gossip Girl and Grease. If you want to find out how we did this, and trust me, you do, keep listening. Today's guest is middle grade and YA author Jen Kalanita. Jen has written so many fun books, and you can learn more at jenkalanitaonline.com. Fun fact, she's even written an American Girl book. Her latest book is Go the Distance, one of Disney's twisted tales. Go the Distance puts a new twist on Hercules and will be on shelves on April 6th. Jen shares more about the book and the process of writing it at the end of this episode. Here's another fun fact about Jen that should come as less of a surprise now that you know she's part of this Disney twisted tales series. She loves running Disney half marathons in Disney costumes. Follow Jen on Twitter and Instagram at Jen Kalanita. Join the SSR social media party at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter and by searching the SSR podcast or the SSR podcast community on Facebook. And join the ratings and reviews party too. The ratings and reviews you leave of the podcast really do help the show gain more listeners and grow. SSR is currently creeping closer and closer to 300 ratings. Can you help me get there? I would really appreciate it. I also really appreciate everyone out there listening who is part of the SSR Patreon family. With Patreon, you can support independent creators and the things they make for just a few dollars a month in exchange for exclusive rewards. You can come on board as an SSR Patreon patron for as little as a dollar per month. SSR Patreon perks include input on book selection, monthly newsletters, bonus episodes, invites to Patreon Zoom parties, monthly video reading recaps, SSR merch, and more. It really is a lot of fun, and I would love to share these perks with you. Visit www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast, or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page for more details. As always, I would love to give a shout out to my friends at Libro.fm, who give us the opportunity to support independent bookstores when we shop for audiobooks. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm 
Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. If you love supporting independent bookstores and want to do it even more, you can also shop with bookshop.org for physical books. Over this last year of pandemic life, I've been buying a lot of my books from bookshop.org so I can support indies, even while I can't visit them easily in person. Big news, I have finally set up the ssrbookshop.org storefront, which makes it super easy for you to shop for the books we discuss on the podcast, the books our guests recommend every week, and the books our author guests have written, all in one place. I've even created a shelf with some of my favorite books for you to shop. Shopping through the SSR storefront comes at no extra cost to you, but it does give you the chance to support both the podcast and independent bookstores as you fill out your TBR list. You can access the SSR storefront through the link in my Instagram bio or by going directly to bookshop.org slash shop slash SSRpod. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is shit she read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hafkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Jen. Welcome to SSR. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so happy to have you here. Um, As listeners know, Judy Bloom is sort of a patron saint of this podcast. We love her. We worship her. She's not perfect, but what queen is. But anytime we get to talk about Judy Bloom on the podcast is a special day. So I'm thrilled to have you along for this ride. I'm excited to be here. I love Judy Bloom and I can't wait to discuss. So we are talking about Then Again, Maybe I Won't, which was published in 1971. This is known as like the Judy Bloom boy book. I feel like Judy Bloom has a couple of touchstone books. I mean, all of her books are touchstone in their own way, but I think Are You There, Goddess Me, Margaret is like the period book. Forever is the sex book. Deanie is the masturbation book. And this is the boy book, which was totally new to me. I did not read this one when I was growing up. Could you share a little bit about any history that you have with this book or with Judy in general? It's funny because I had never read this one either, so I was excited to dig in. But I will tell you, Judy changed everything for me. But funnily enough, it had nothing to do with Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. I got into reading because of Fudge. Do you remember the Fudge books? I do. We did one episode about Super Fudge, but we need to do like more Fudge on the show. We've, We've gone more like the tween puberty route, but I know there's a whole other world with Fudge. Well, Tales of Fourth Grade Nothing was the first book that I really could get behind. I kept telling my teacher at school that I didn't like to read, I wasn't a good reader. And she said, well, what kind of books are you reading? And I admitted that when we went to the library, whatever book one of my friends took out, I would take it out next. And she's like, that's not a great system because what you and your friend could like could be two very different things. So she said, what kind of things do you like doing when you're not reading? And I said, I loved funny movies. So she gave me tales of a fourth grade nothing. And then I had to read all the books about Peter and Fudge. And it just hooked me from there. And after that, I wanted to read everything by Judy Bloom and everybody else for that matter. So I am forever grateful for Judy because she changed everything for me. One more person who sees her as the patron saint of reading. She is, truly. 
you're in good company. Uh, very happy to have you on a Judy episode. That story makes it so much more exciting that you picked this book. So let's talk a little bit about how Then Again, Maybe I Won't came about. So from my research, it appears that Judy Bloom was inspired to write this book based on the success of Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. And I have to believe that she was like, okay, all of these girls are fascinated by reading about this 13-year-old's relatable, accessible experience going through puberty. Boys are going to eat this up too. I just have to do a boy version of the same story. This is kind of where I want to begin because, and I love your thoughts. You're an author. You live in this world. You work in this world. And listeners will know this, but I'll share it with you too. I used to work in children's publishing. So I know that the stats prove out, and this is, I'm not trying, I'm not hating on anybody here. These are the numbers. There are more girl readers than boy readers, generally speaking. I wish that were not the case. I hope there are a lot more boy readers in the future now than when I was working in publishing. But as I was reading this, I could not stop thinking to myself, how did all of the young girls who fell in love with Judy Bloom reading Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, and everything else in the late 60s, early 70s, how did they then react when they picked this book up? Did you have that thought while you were reading too? You know, it's funny because I have two boys and they are 16 and 12. Okay. And I just kept trying to think about them reading this book and what they would think of this book. They probably wouldn't pick it up. It's not the kind of thing they gravitate towards, but I just kept thinking of them and what was going on in their head at this age. And I just, I don't know. I just, I was impressed with Judy for trying to tackle it. I really was, but it just, I don't know. I don't, I don't remember reading it. I mean, I didn't read it when I was 13. So I just kept thinking, how would I have reacted to this when I was reading it? It just felt very foreign and different to me. Yes, I, I think that those are great words. And I, I will share, and listeners might know this, I only have sisters. Same. I do not have children, so I, I don't have a son experience. My husband and I have not really like gone in depth in stories about our own like coming of age moments. I'm aware of what happens to boys in puberty, but because I did not grow up in a house with brothers, I never experienced this firsthand. And listeners, what I'm referring to is a very, I would say very explicit and what I would imagine, what I would hope are relatable discussions of things like wet dreams, Mm -hmm. of having erections in public. These are all things that I know happen And things that I know can be really challenging for boys who are tweens, much like the anxiety about getting your period for the first time can be anxiety provoking for girls or shopping for a bra for the first time. There's a lot of parallels here. Yes. And so as I was, I was catching myself getting a little squirmy in this book and I am, I'm happy to admit that. And then I sort of, I had to like interrogate it a little bit because I was like, okay, just pause because I did not feel that way when I read a book like, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. And I recognized that I was lucky to have grown up in a house that was fairly open about what would be happening to my body when I went through puberty. I went to a school that had what I think was pretty comprehensive sex ed, at least for the 90s. I don't know if I would call it comprehensive by today's standards and what I know now. So I think that I was fairly comfortable reading about my own journey when I was a little girl, a cis little girl, of course, I always like to make that distinction. And I think that my discomfort with reading this book, I sort of had to challenge myself because I was like, 
I think that there's value in anybody reading about the experience that I had when I was growing up. Like, I wish that my husband had read a book like, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, when he was a kid, so he could understand me. So why am I uncomfortable with this book? So I was sort of like, I was fighting with myself a little bit while I was reading it. Right. And I came at it from like a mom standpoint, because, you know, as you mentioned, the sex education we got when we were in school, I would hope is different from today. But let me tell you something. I've had to sit through a few of these videos because they show them to parents and they show the puberty one in sixth grade at my kids. I'm sorry, fifth grade. And in sixth grade, they show the sex education video at my kids school. And it was, you know, it was still uncomfortable because (laughs) you're, you're imagining your kid watching this and quite frankly there's probably good money to be made if somebody could update these videos because they still look like they were produced in the 80s no (laughs) yeah i mean the content is definitely updated but like the video itself i'm like who taped this was this taped at home so i mean i just appreciate the fact that judy way back in the 70s was attempting to educate us all and educate girls on what boys are going through. And I I think that's so commendable because no one was really doing it. And even now, like all we have is these kind of cheesy sex ed videos that our kids get to watch. And we gotta be able to do better than that. I think those are great points. I will just own, I had my moments of immaturity while I was reading this book. I'm trying to put them aside as a 30 year old woman, trying to run a podcast about kids lit. But I wanted to be very honest with my reading experience as somebody who really like I had not experienced any book that explored these kinds of topics before. And and to your point, I think that says so much about Judy Bloom, as always, the queen. Yes. Who was willing to tackle this in again the early, early 70s when people were not talking openly about these issues. And I do think that there's I'm sure there's a whole other podcast discussion to be had about the way that boys versus girls are conditioned to ask questions about their bodies and to be curious about their bodies and to sort of have like uncomfortable conversations. Um, My memory of the boy sex ed when I was growing up was that there really weren't any questions. Like you went in the room, you came out and that was it. Whereas I remember being in a room with all these girls and everybody was like a little fearful and asking questions. And I do think that there's something to be said that there's this book as a resource that could maybe open up a different kind of conversation that might look a little bit more similar to what similar to what happens in those like girl sex ed classrooms. And again, listeners, I want to be very clear. I'm speaking in very heteronormative binary terms. And unfortunately, that's reflective of the way that sex ed happens in most school systems to this point. It's the way that I grew up. It's the way that sex and gender is portrayed in this book. So I want to be very clear about that. Um, And I know that it's not how an author in 2021 would perhaps discuss these matters, we are taking it from where it comes in 1971. So I just want to make sure I get that very clear for listeners who are concerned because I get it. Let's talk about our main character, Tony. When we meet him, he's 13. He's loving life in Jersey City. What were your first impressions of him? He seems so happy there. So, you know, when the family, all of a sudden, dad is this inventor who makes it big. He sells his electrical box and they're moving out to Long Island, which is where I actually live, is Long Island. So I I found it um, comical that Long Island was seen as like the holy grail. But um, he was so happy there. It wasn't like he looked at his life and thought, you know, we don't have a lot as a family. He loved his paper route, even though it gave him, you know, there were some issues with it and some unhappy customers. He loved hanging out with his friends. He was very comfortable. So he seemed like a kid who 
really was comfortable in his shoes. You know what I mean? Like this was not a kid who was like questioning himself. He obviously had lost an older brother, but beyond that, and I, I don't mean to dismiss that, but beyond that, he was a pretty happy, comfortable 13 year old, which isn't always the case. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. He's the youngest of three brothers, as you mentioned, one of one of whom was unfortunately killed in the Vietnam War, which gives us a sense of the setting and the world that these kids are living in. He does have this older brother named Ralph, who I loved this idea of having an older brother who's like the cool teacher at school. Yes. <laughs> and I have similarly like large age gaps with my younger sisters. And so it's like, oh, how cool would it be if I had decided to be a teacher when I taught at their school and people thought that I was awesome. That was sort of the experience that Tony was having as Ralph's younger brother. And Tony was just happy. And I thought that what was really yeah. interesting about the way that Judy portrays this world of Jersey City is the way she hints at Tony's Italian-American heritage without ever coming out and being like, Tony's family is from Italy. I thought it was done with a really gentle hand that showed us what it meant in 1971 to sort of celebrate those roots and to be part of an Italian-American community without making it feel like it was too heavy-handed. It didn't feel like she was making it a caricature. But I did feel like it was, it's something that I don't always find in kids' books where I feel like an author is really taking the time to celebrate that element of a character's background and family. Yeah. And you know what I really loved too was that Tony's grandmother lives with them who cannot speak. I'm trying to remember what the reasoning was that she can't speak, but she had, she's had a procedure and she can't speak and, but she cooks for the family. Tony is still able to communicate with her, you know, through looks and he just kind of, they're very close. They're a very close-knit family. And I loved that it was just portrayed like, this is the norm. Grandma lives with us. Grandma can't speak. Grandma cooks for us. She is like fully part of the family. It's not like it's a burden on the family, which you see sometimes portrayed that way. It's it's not like um, it's you know frowned upon or, or hardship. I just loved that it was this extended family. Ralph and his wife don't have a lot. You get the impression so they're always around and they're always eating with them. And they are—they seem to be a close-knit Italian family without it hitting us over the head about their heritage. I thought that was done well. Yeah, I mean, even the fact that Ralph and Angela's financial need is the thing that sort of kicks off the action of the story. Yes. I think speaks to the importance of the family unit that Judy Bloom has built in this book. Because the reason that Tony and Ralph's dad even considers sort of venturing outside of his comfort zone as an electrician and trying to sell these cartridges that he's invented is because Angela announces that she's pregnant. And it was sort of a, it was a weird vibe. It wasn't even sort of, yeah. sort of a weird vibe. It was a weird vibe when they announced it because she was like, okay, we're having a baby at the dinner table. And, you know, if my mom's listening, my mom would, would weep tears of joy if I made that announcement. And, uh, and I'm at that point in my life at 30 where these are the announcements that are coming all over social media and it's all so happy and joyful and the grandparents are thrilled. And Tony's parents are like, okay, great. Oh, oh, this feels, how do we feel? And Tony is confused. I was confused as a reader, again, because this is the paradigm that I'm looking at it from. But it's because Ralph and Angela are sort of owning the fact that they don't have the means to support a baby. And so the fact that Tony's parents are understanding that even without being asked, it's their role to facilitate a better situation for Ralph and Angela. That's unique. Like that's a defining characteristic of this family. 
Yes, that was um, so interesting to me because, you know, Ralph is, you know, he's married, he has his own life, and yet his parents are taking over this responsibility of thinking, how are we going to help them? You know, we want our first grandchild to have everything they need and more. And, you know, you could tell, like, just knowing she was pregnant, immediately it felt like a hardship on the family. Like, all right, we got to figure this out. We don't have the money, but we've got to figure out a way to make sure this baby has everything and has a better situation, which you know, isn't always the case. Like my kids are young, so I'm not in that situation, but I do know like, you know, extended family and things like that. Parents who are in that same boat, we're trying, they're trying to help their kids have what they can't provide on their own. And um, again, it just happens back to the fact that this family is very close knit and they will, you know, they just kind of, even though they live in, you know, they don't live together, but they, you know, they move as a unit, like whatever's going to happen is going to happen together. Like if it's a hardship for them having a baby, then it's going to be a hardship for us so we can figure it out. So that was interesting to me. Yeah. Cause at first I actually thought they did all live together. Like the way that it was, right. introduced. I thought they were all living in this, in this house and that Ralph and Angela had one room and grandma had one room, but it turns out that I believe Ralph and Angela just lived in an apartment in the same building, maybe. Yes. Which I thought was a smart decision because it's like you said, we're still moving together, but we technically we're separate households which sort of adds this this sort of um extra tension to like what tony's parents are going to do with this news about the baby right and not to jump ahead but you know later when tony moves to rosemont which is a fictional town on long island because there is no rosemont but um when he moves to rosemont later on ralph and angela and the baby also move there which at first you know rosemont is seen as this like creme de la creme wealthy upper crust area on Long Island, which there definitely are areas like that. There are everywhere. But I was like, how the heck is Ralph going to afford to live in Rosemont? Like, <laughs> you know, are Tony's parents funding this move? But of course, Ralph winds up working for his dad, which I don't know about you, but I kind of felt like Tony was a little upset about that. It was kind of like his brother, who he had so admired, had lost a little bit of street cred moving out of the apartment and Jersey City or... Did he work in Brooklyn? But he just kind of lost some of that credibility because now he's kind of like selling out to the man, right? He's moving out to Long Island, but he was also doing it so that Vicky, their baby, who was born during the course of the book, could have a better life. Yeah, it was almost as if until Ralph made the decision to go work for their dad, Tony could still think of him as a peer. Yes. Like, I think, I would imagine, I don't think they ever, I don't think we ever find out exactly how old Ralph is, but I would assume he's maybe like 22, 23. So they do have a fairly wide age gap, but I would think if you're 13 and you have a brother who is 22 or 23, but is still around all the time, can do activities with you, knowing that their other brother has passed away, he's probably going out of his way to like look out for Tony. So even though it's clear that he's so much older than you, he happens to be at school because he's a teacher and he's around. So he still kind of feels like a kid. And I think that one of the reasons that Tony struggled with the news of the baby, it went beyond the fact that he just like didn't know what to do with the baby. It's weird to see your older brother as a dad. But I think it wasn't until months after that, months after the baby was born, that Ralph decided that he was going to, in Tony's perspective, sell out and go work for this big company that it became clear to Tony that like, oh no, my brother is a grown up. He's a dad. And I think it probably made Tony feel alone because he in some ways is an only child in this household where he technically is supposed to have siblings. Right. He is the youngest. I mean, their older brother, the family doesn't really talk about Vinny except on the anniversary of his death when they go to visit the grave site because it's just too painful for mom and dad 
to talk about him. So he doesn't really get to talk about his brother. Then you have Ralph, who has moved on, is married, has a baby, and he's the only one living at home. And then Grandma, over the course of the story here, they move out to Rosemont, and Mom gets like a live-in housekeeper slash cook, and Grandma basically has no role anymore and kind of takes to her room in the new house and doesn't want to come out. And there's this great moment in the book where, you know, again, Grandma can't speak. But Tony goes up to her room. She just kind of knows. She just kind of knows he needs like a hug and he needs to sit with her. And it's like this very beautiful grandparent moment that they have together. Like she, even not speaking, can sense exactly what is bothering Tony. Because it's probably the same thing bothering her about how their life has changed. And they exchange no words. But it's just this great moment where they really understand each other. I really like that one. Yeah, I love that scene. I grew up with my grandmother living in in our house. So a lot of those moments really resonated with me. And I wrote down one line from that scene where Tony says, we are both outsiders in our own home. Yes. And it, it broke my heart in the best way because it just, it made me think about the times when I was a teenager and I felt like my grandmother really understood me, even though she was still technically in charge of me. Yeah, I thought that was really special. And I think Vinny is interesting because even though we never see him and we actually don't find out very much about him at all beyond the fact that he's unfortunately been killed in Vietnam and it's really upsetting, obviously, for Tony's parents to talk about him and they take this family pilgrimage once a year to go to his gravesite. I was thinking about him in that scene where they go to the cemetery He's sort of this like ruler, this yardstick kind of against which Tony sees the family like measuring their progress against, if that makes sense. I pulled out this one line where Tony says, does Vinny know about us now? Does he know that we live in a big white house and that we drove here in a new green hardtop instead of the old truck? Does he know that grandma has her own color TV because she's not allowed to cook anymore? Does he know about our boss, Maxine? And if he knows, what does he think? Is he laughing at us? Is he laughing and saying, hey, what happened to you guys since you visited me last year? So yeah, I was just thinking about him as like, he's the only member of this family that's saying the same. And obviously in this very dark, upsetting way, but I do think that Tony is very aware of the fact that like, if this family is measuring themselves against anybody, it has to be against Vinny. And just to think about how much their lives have changed in the year since they last went to the cemetery that's when it really starts to, I think, crystallize for him. Yeah, that is uh, that was such a good passage that you um, you read because that was a strong moment when they were at the gravesite. And I think for Tony, it all feels so alien because you know when Dad gets this new job and he sells his electrical box and they move to Rosemont, Dad is thrilled. They have all this money. They have this big house. They have this new car. Tony, they think can go to a better school, have a better life. It works out for Ralph and his wife as well. Mom now has like Maxine, who is again, their housekeeper slash cook. Everybody seems so happy. Like they've just kind of rolled with the punches except for Tony and grandma, right? They, they were perfectly happy with the life they had in Jersey city. So it's almost like that life is being erased. And I feel like Vinny is the constant, right? He is something they can erase even if they still talk about it. Like he is their link. And I feel like that, that was part of the reason Tony struggled so much. It just seemed like everything he had that he knew was being forgotten for this shiny new life that he wasn't even sure he really 
loved at that point. Like, and they really, they tried to throw money at things all the time. Like when mom seemed tired, that's when they hired Maxine. And when Tony mentioned, you know, maybe I'll get a paper route out here on Long Island. Their dad, there was this great, I had uh, folded the page in the book, but there was this great moment where they're like, Tony, you don't, you don't need a paper route. I mean, do you need money? We'll give you money. And they offer him $10 a week. And let me tell you something, as a mom of a 12 year old, <laughs> uh, I don't even give $10 a week for chores around the house. So I was like, this is the seventies and they're paying him 10 a week. To me, it almost feels like, I don't know, if you talk about inflation, it was like they were giving him 40 a week. I don't know what Tony would have done with that money. But I, you know, I don't even want my kids to know Tony was getting $10 in 1973. So they just kept throwing money at things. They got him this new bike and Tony was almost like, I that's, that's not what I want. I just want my family. Yeah. One of the reviews that I read of this book online, and I'll include links to all of them, listeners, if you want to go check them out in the show notes. But one of the um, sort of informal reader blog reviews was talking about how Judy Bloom has an extra panache for writing terrible parents in a way that kids can sort of identify them and can see like, mm, something's not quite right here. But this particular reviewer says like, this mom is potentially the worst. And I think that the paper route thing was one of the examples that was called out that I think even a lot of kid readers would read that and understand like, why wouldn't you want him to have a job? Like, I think there's freedom for a lot of kids and having the ability to make your own money. And I think even when I think about a kid having a paper route in the 70s, there, there's not that kind of like a, a simple job, I think, available for a lot of kids now. Like right. when I was in high school, you had to get working papers. Like there was no kid who just got on a bike and like casually tossed newspapers to the whole town. That just wasn't, that's not, that was not my experience. I don't think it was the experience of anybody I grew up with. I'm sure there are people who have had that experience more recently, but I think that kids today would probably read this and be like, oh, that's so great that like he had that kind of agency over his time and over his money. And it's so frustrating that his mom is so committed to him not having that power over himself. And it's because she doesn't want to be judged. She's very concerned about what other families will think if they see her son out working. And I think that brings us very nicely to the neighbors, the Hoovers, who mom is very interested in keeping up with. And Joel. Uh, Joel is the younger son of the Hoovers, the younger child, and he is Tony's age. And what were your first impressions of him? He seems okay at first. He like plays chess. He has good manners. He's really charming the parents. Well, yeah, like, I, again, looking at it from a mom perspective, I remember meeting Joel and I was thinking, oh, this kid is too good to be true. Yeah. I mean, just the way he charms them, he shakes his dad's hand, he's so polite to mom, and I think even Tony is like, what's up with this? And then, you know, Joel takes him over to his house where he's got this amazing pool that Tony's been looking at all summer while Joel's been away at camp, and Tony wants to go in this pool, so he goes over anyway, and then Joel wants to play chess, and it just feels so... Like, I think Tony has this line where he says, like, Joel wouldn't last a week in Jersey City. Like, they are very different kids. But obviously, Tony's parents are like, this is a good boy. We, Tony, you have to be good friends with this boy. Like, it's not even, you know, a question. Uh, so he just seemed too good to be true. And of course, then he was. Yeah, I think it sort of speaks to the way that, like, threats or bad behavior can present themselves in sort of sneaky ways. I was thinking about Gossip Girl and how Gossip Girl is populated by all of these really good looking boys who are clean cut and take good care of themselves and know how to 
be polite to adults and know how to ask the right questions and how to have mature conversations. And that comes off really great to the adults. But as we know, SSR family, Chuck Bass is the worst and is literally assaulting women in bathrooms. Nate Archibald is cheating on his girlfriend. And I do feel like Joel Huber is sort of in that same vein of kid. And I think, you know, I lived in New York for eight years. I only recently left. And I do think there's something to this stereotype of this like polished New York City kid who's secretly a bad boy. And I do think maybe Joel fits into that category. Like I can see him taking a bus into some elite private school in Manhattan and being in with that kind of crowd. Oh, well, totally. I mean, Joel could have easily been on Gossip Girl. And, you know, we learn at the end of the book, Joel, he is a shoplifter. And Tony just never really knows what to do about that. You know, and and I think that's like a problem a lot of kids have, right? I mean, they see something wrong and they should speak up, but they're a little terrified about speaking up kind of speaks to the title of the book like I'll say something but then again maybe I won't say something but Joel easily could be on Gossip Girl and at the end of the book Joel's parents like the way of dealing with Joel when he's caught shoplifting instead of like sitting the kid down and trying to spend more time with him these parents who've been absentee pretty much the whole book ship him off to I think military school that could easily be a private school on Manhattan you know in Manhattan's Upper West Side and Joel could meet Nate and Chuck and the rest of the crew so He'd fit in well. Yeah, I think I think uh, he could easily be their friend and ruin some girls' lives right alongside them, which is gross. But yeah, this the shoplifting thing is interesting, and I think it really illuminates Tony's position as a new kid because I, I do think for the most part, like while he's unsure about Rosemont as a town, he does transition fairly seamlessly. I mean, I've read a lot of new kid stories for this podcast at this point. And he he's done okay. Like he found friends, he got into the youth group, he knows where he can go play basketball, he's comfortable enough going to his neighbor's house. But when these moments of Joel's bad behavior crop up and Tony has to reckon with them and really think about how he wants to deal with it, it reminded me of the fact that like he's still trying to toe the line and figure out where he wants to fit in. He says, what am I supposed to do about it? Call the police? I suppose I could. I wouldn't have to give them my name or anything. Or I could tell the man in the store about it, but I don't want to. Really, what I want to do is get a look at Lisa's diary. Uh, we need to talk about Lisa, so maybe I won't even maybe I won't even continue. But then he says, if I tell on Joel, we'll never be able to be friends. Just when things are looking good and I'm feeling settled, it would be bad news to have to start out all over again. So every time he witnesses Joel doing something wrong, he has to decide what he's willing to risk of his new life in Rosemont. Right. And Joel is there. He's established. Joel introduces him to a lot of his friends who Tony really likes, probably way more than Joel. And there is that fear of if I rat out Joel, then these other kids might not want to hang out with me either. And I really like these other kids. So what do I do? So he he definitely struggles with that. But Lisa, yeah. we have to oh, talk about Lisa. Okay, I think we have to talk about Lisa. I've been dreading it. <laughs> okay, so I'm being very dramatic right now. But It's true. This is how I really feel. So Lisa is Joel's older sister and Tony's obsessed with her. I think that's a good way to to characterize it, right? Absolutely. He's obsessed. And uh, she's too old for him. She, in his mind, is too cool for him. We would probably say today she's too hot for him. And again, she's too old for him. But I will, I will say as a disclaimer, regardless of how much older than him she is, none of what's about to happen is okay. This is not about the age difference. No. So no. <laughs> 
At some point, Tony realizes that his bedroom window faces her bedroom window because, again, they're next-door neighbors. And once I realized they were neighbors, the fact that there's a drawing of a set of binoculars on the cover of this book began to make so much sense and started to make me feel a little icky. So he decides that he's going to ask for a pair of binoculars for Christmas. And his parents are like, oh, cool, why? And he says he wants to get into bird watching, which is great kid humor. I got to say, like, well done, Judy, as always. Really honest moment with a 13-year-old. But he does get the binoculars, and he does use them to watch her get undressed. Luckily, we don't get a lot of descriptions of how he experiences this, which I appreciate. But I will say that I think that the way that this little subplot plays out, particularly the way it concludes or like doesn't really conclude at the end of the book, would in no way be the same if this book were written in 2021 or maybe even in like the 80s or 90s, because there's not really a conclusion. Tony tells his therapist that he does this, that he watches this girl who lives next door to him, who is a minor, get undressed. And his therapist is like, oh, okay. Like he doesn't really address it at all. And I don't really know the rules, but I would imagine that if we're dealing with minors, like a therapist would probably somehow intervene. It just, it felt super weird. And then at the end, like the final line is, is, Tony basically saying, like, I guess I could pack up my binoculars and stop spying on Lisa, but then again, maybe I won't. For me, it feels like a lot of sort of, it feels very tangential to the like locker room talk argument of like, this is just how boys are. This is what boys do. I just said a lot. I'm going to kick it over to you, Jen. How do you feel about Lisa and the binoculars? (laughs) Well, I also, and this is so terrible of me to say, so terrible, but I kept wondering throughout the book, like there was something about Lisa where I think she totally knew that Joel had a crush on her. Yeah. And she kind of liked it, even though she had no interest in Joel, because again, he is way young for her, as you know we've established. So then part of me was kind of wondering, like, she knows Joel lives next door. Why is she undressing with the the blinds open? I feel like at night, I am constantly closing blinds. I don't want people watching me watch TV, any of the above. Part of me was like, does Lisa know Tony is watching her? Why does she always flirt with him? Like there's a point in the pool where she's joking around and she's like, he's he's really cute. I, you know, but he's, you know, too bad you're too young for me kind of thing. And I'm like, I almost felt like she liked the attention, which doesn't make it right in any way, shape or form. But I was also wondering, like, I don't know, Lisa, like, this is inappropriate on your side, too. Could you please leave this young boy alone and not kind of be so excited that he's into you? It bothered me. And to interject briefly, I wonder if in 1971, in that sort of version of the world and in that conception of the male gaze and the way that we do or do not pay attention to others. I wonder if, to your point, the fact that she seemed to enjoy the attention was perceived as sort of the green light for this to be less creepy. Whereas, of course, when we're talking about this book in 2020, 2021, we understand that that's categorically false. Like, it it doesn't matter if you're enjoying the attention or not. This is not okay. Right. I wonder if in 1971... Our girl, Judy, who she's not perfect. She was writing this in 1971. Maybe she was like, okay, if I make it seem as though Lisa likes Tony a little bit, then maybe it will be okay. I want to make it clear again. I do not feel that way. 
I'm no. sensing that Jen also does not feel that way. I do not feel that way either. But you're right. Maybe in 1971, Judy thought, well, this will make it less creepy, right? If I write it this way, if Lisa seems okay with it, or Lisa wants it, it's less creepy. It's not. It's still very creepy. And those scenes were so uncomfortable watching Tony watch her out the window. And the fact, I don't know, if my kids asked me for binoculars and my 13-year-old or 16-year-old said, I'm, I'm going to take a bird watching. I'm sorry, but like some red lights would go off and I would say, really, bird watching? There is no way I would let this go. I just, but again, this is the 70s, different time. And these are obviously very different parents. Maybe Judy was thinking this worked. I would imagine that as she is conceiving of this quote unquote boy book, she is looking for these kind of key moments in a 13 year old boy's life to play with as part of the plot. Again, coming at it from a late 60s, early 70s point of view. And this, I can I can see how this felt like a very tangible thing that she could use to sort of really show Tony's like sexual awakening, the way that his interest in girls is developing, his first really intense crush. I think that what is disturbing for me in 2020 is like, I'm not naive enough to believe that these things don't happen in 2021, obviously. I think that what is hard as a reader is that like there were there were no consequences. And I think as satisfying as it was to see that Joel had some consequences in the end for his behavior, I wish that there had been a little bit more closure to what to me was clearly like a wrongdoing on Tony's part. And we have a lot of discussion on the podcast about like, do all kids' books have to have a moral? Like, do we have to be moralizing to kids all the time? In order for this plot line to work, do we have to have an adult sitting Tony down and saying like, this isn't okay, let me explain to you why. I don't know if that's what I was looking for exactly. And I'm sure that there are listeners out there who are saying like, no, because that might not be what actually happens. Like, let's tell it like it is. I guess I just think some closure on it would have been nice. Again, coming from a 2021 perspective, and because, I mean, it's the binoculars that are on the cover of, of the book. It's a redesign, of course, for a newer paperback. But I was like, I, I, we need to close the loop on the binoculars. It just, it ate at me a little bit that we never got that. Yeah, I almost, you know, like as a writer, I kept thinking like, you know, if you weren't going to change anything else in this story, it would have been nice at the end if the one person who kind of really knew what Tony was up to, like grandma, yeah, had, was looking out her window at the same time and can see the lights on in Tony's window and it some point she hands him the binoculars or wraps him over the head with like a newspaper or something. And you just kind of get the idea that she knows what he's up to and she's telling him it's wrong. Or Lisa at some point, it would have been nice if she came up to him and was like, listen, perv, what you're doing is wrong, you know? And I just wanted some moment with that, some kind of, you know, closure, which we didn't get. Yeah, I didn't need like a Danny Tanner full house moment, but I think something at the end would have been good. And I think what makes the situation with Lisa that much grosser is this this sort of quiet relationship that Tony has with a younger girl at school named Corky, yeah, who is his age, and he describes her as being very scrawny. At one point, he says something to the effect of like, "I don't like skinny girls," which I like wrote a big ew next to. <laughs> I do think like that's where some of this language starts. And she wants to be a cheerleader. Lisa is a cheerleader. And it just seemed to me that Tony was like perceiving Corky only in relation to Lisa. So like when Corky was not as cool or not as pretty or not as popular as Lisa, it was like, she's worse than Lisa. But then toward the end of the book, when Corky started to kind of gain some confidence, 
and she was on the cheerleading team and she seemed to be a little more comfortable, then it was like, oh, she's more like Lisa now. And I would be happier to get to know her now than I would have been before she was more like Lisa. And I think it's also this sense of like, I'm trying to think of a movie to compare it to. Like, it's like Grease. It's like the end of Grease where Sandy gets hot and like changes who she is and puts on the black leather outfit so that she can date Danny Zuko. I felt like that's kind of what happened with Corky. Like Corky put on the cheerleading costume and changed the way that she looked. And I just, I wanted more for Corky. But yeah, it was very much like an Olivia Newton-John, John Travolta, here I am ready to date you kind of finale for Corky and Tony. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head right there. That's exactly how it was. Poor Corky. And, you know, but she doesn't know what Tony's thinking, but I just felt for her. Yeah, I would have been friends with Corky in middle school for sure. Me too. Totally. I want to touch on the portrayal of mental health in this book because I thought that that was really cool and well done. Not that the rest of the book wasn't, but we've just come off somewhat of a rough a rough moment for this book. This book, I think, has a it, it depicts sort of the world of mental health and of the mind-body connection in a fairly positive light, especially for the time. Something that we haven't talked about yet is that throughout the book, Tony complains of stomach aches. He has stomach cramps. And at first, it seems sort of random. But then as we get sort of at the halfway point, I would say, it becomes clear that these stomach cramps that he's getting are linked to stressful situations. And as somebody who has all of the stomach issues and all of the nervous stomach issues, I was like, oh, I know what this is. He gets stressed and his stomach hurts. And as the book progresses, it happens more and more. And there's sort of a turning point where he passes out from stomach cramps after one of Joel's shoplifting incidents and he's taken to the hospital. And the doctors there are like, there's there's nothing medically wrong with him. So he can go home, but we recommend that he go to therapy. And it felt to me like a fairly positive portrayal. I don't think there were a lot of books for kids at this time who were like spinning or even talking about mental health in this way. But I thought that it was pretty well done, even from our like much more pro mental health perspective today. Absolutely. And I have um, my youngest also always ton of stomach issues and uh, definitely related to stress. And so like I saw that I saw my son in Tony And I was so impressed that Judy was like sharing this storyline in the 70s when I don't think it was talked about as much. It definitely wasn't something that was talked about a lot when I was a kid. It is so different today. And I thought she did a great job with it. It was also a very specific thing about Tony, which I liked. Like I I think that Judy Bloom is so great at not painting characters in broad strokes because it would be very easy to do that. Like here's a 13-year-old boy who's discovering his body and going through puberty for the first time. And he's a new kid. But she puts these little details in there that I think go a long way to make these kids seem so human. And I've noticed that about her in all of these books of hers that I reread for the podcast. And I thought that this, this stomach cramp thing was especially meaningful because I think that in a world where maybe having like stomach issues when you get scared would perhaps not be perceived as especially masculine in a traditional sense. She like gives that to Tony and he has to figure out how to deal with that. And he's not really ashamed of it once he figures out what it is. And he just, he works it out. I really liked that. I thought that was a really smart detail. And um, it made me want to keep looking at more books from this time period that talk about mental health in this way. So I, I loved that part. It also really impressed me. Like one thing you read about when you read a lot of the reviews of this book is, oh, this was Judy's short book. This mm. was so short. 
but she crammed so much into this very short story. We have the mental health issues. We have puberty. We have being the new kid. We have, you know, coming into wealth and, and trying to handle this brand new situation with our family, losing a brother, family relationships. There was so much going on in here that Judy was tackling uh, so many plot points that she you know, most of them, she tied up nicely, most. So, I mean, all hail the queen. She did a good job with this. All hail the queen. Yeah, I agree. I actually, when I was looking at my notes before I jumped on to chat with you today, I was like shocked by all of the questions and all of the different like directions that we could take this conversation. And even though this is the quote, like boy puberty book, we didn't really talk. I mean, that we sort of, we laid the framework for that piece of this book at the front of our conversation at the top of the episode, but there's so much else happening. I did want to ask you one more thing before we start to wind down, because I thought this was interesting with respect to the conversation about class. Throughout the book, Tony seems suspicious that at some point, all of this money that his family has come into is going to run out because his parents are obviously spending their new wealth irresponsibly. I mean, there's like a new piano in the house. Nobody plays the piano. There's new cars every day. I think maybe there's an implication that this has happened before. His dad has like blown a lot of money in the past. And Tony is like not, he doesn't have high hopes that this is going to be their permanent financial status. Did you see that coming? Like, were, were you on board with Tony thinking like, okay, part of the end of this story is that his family is going to end up losing all of this money. They're going to have to move back to Jersey City. Do you think that that would have made the story more interesting? Are you happy that that wasn't part of it? Because it did come up again and again. You know, I feel like it would have had to be a much longer story for that to have happened. But I was wondering the same thing. I kept wondering if it was all going to go away. And there was this one line, this one area I had written down that was so interesting. You know, when Ralph and Angela bring Vicky out and they're moving to Rosemont, their baby, Ralph says to him, you know, kids are pretty expensive, especially when you want to give them everything. And Tony says, I thought maybe that's the trouble. Maybe kids don't always want you to give them everything. And that's such like a strong line, such a good point. Like, just because you can give your family everything and your children everything doesn't mean you should. Like they have to learn the value of things. And Tony's parents taking away the chance of him having this paper route again and having to work for what he wants probably wasn't the best advice. So I loved that Tony was intuitive enough to think they're going to blow this. At some point we could lose this house if they don't get their crap together. So I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop too. And maybe if there had been a sequel to this book, that would have been what we saw happen them losing everything. Yeah, I was like on the edge of my seat waiting for it to happen because I kind of wanted Tony to be right just because I could see how smart he was about this kind of stuff. But I guess I'm happy that we didn't complicate the story by there being all this family drama about losing money and then do we move back to Jersey City or what do we do? So just an interesting little touch of Judy, just one more of Judy's little interesting touches throughout this book. On the whole, Jen, I know you did not read this book when you were growing up, so we can't compare it to an earlier reading experience, but do you feel that it met your expectations? Did you enjoy it as a read overall? How do you think it held up to the way we look at things in 2021? Lots of questions, just kind of looking for your overall thoughts. You know, I'm so glad I got to read this one that I had missed the first time around. It was, you know, interesting for me as a lover of Judy's books, as a mom of two boys. And also, I just love that some of the themes really do hold up today, as we just said, like, you know, not getting everything you want just because you can have it, trying to figure out who you are in your skin, handling puberty, handling family. I mean, there's so much that still resonates today that, you know, it's almost like, did Judy have a crystal ball? Like she just kind of, some of it holds up really well. Yeah. I, I think like the awkwardness of being a preteen, it's the same throughout the ages. Like kids always have the same insecurities, the same worries, the same 
this is going to sound cheesy, but like the same dreams, the same hopes, they have the same kinds of crushes. So I do think that's why some of her books, well, really all of her books feel so timeless for the most part. What have you been reading lately other than, then again, maybe I won't that you would recommend to our listeners. It doesn't have to be a kid's book. It can be anything that you've just really liked. So I read uh, this book that I didn't want to read actually over the holidays. It was called Miss Benson's Beetle by Rachel Joyce. I don't know if you've heard of it. It is literally about two women in 1950s London who go across the world in search of this mythical gold beetle. And it's very Thelma and Louise. They are unlikely partners in crime. And my book club had picked it and I just sat on my bedside table for weeks. And I was like, this does not, I don't think I would like this. And I just love the way a book can surprise you because I just loved it. And by the end, I was sobbing and like immediately dropped the book off at my mom's house and was like, you have to read this. It's amazing. And everybody I tell about it reads it and loves it. So I highly recommend that one. And then I've been um, just really enjoying some lighter reads as well. I'm very into Christina Lauren at the moment. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I've missed out on them until now. But in a holidays was so amazing so fun oh so fun and then I read the unhoneymooners and now I'm reading twice in a blue moon and I am just on a full Christina Lauren kick and then I'm about to read something called the chicken sisters that my book club just picked up so I'm okay you know I don't allow myself just to read Christina Lauren's because I could go I could dive deep into that area right now and not look back but um I'm alternating. I'm alternating. <laughs> There's another Christina Lauren that I, I actually, um, my book club, we used to read like a romance every February just for fun and to keep it on theme. And we read, I forget what the full title is, but it's Josh and Hazel's something. You recommend that one? Yeah, it was. I mean, that was the first Christina Lauren book that I had read. And I I think I was, I was like, wow, this is so steamy. But I guess I think In Holidays was pretty steamy too. I really enjoyed that one. I flew through that in December. But yeah, Josh and Hazel was really fun. Yeah, in a holidays, like I finished that and I was like, okay, who else has a really good holiday rom-com I could read? Like, I just want more of those. Like, I need to make sure every December I read a few, like, very good holiday rom-coms because it was exactly what I needed. I remember last December I did one day in December. Yeah. um, And that one was amazing too. Like, I just, that needs to be my December pick. Yeah, I've gotten into, like, cheesy holiday rom-coms. So we'll have to talk next November. We'll have to swap notes. But you also have a lot of books that we need to tell the people about. I understand that you have a new one coming out this spring. What do we need to know about it? So I have had the privilege of doing some of the Disney Twisted Tale books where we just put a new spin on the version of the Disney movie that you know and love. And so I did Hercules and it's called Go the Distance and it's told from Meg's point of view. And my twist was what if Meg had to become a god to be with Hercules? Because when we were trying to think of twists, my whole thing was if you've seen the Hercules movie, Hercules spent the whole movie trying to become a god to prove to Zeus that he was his son and he could be a god and then at the end of the movie he says to Zeus you know what thank you but I'm gonna stay here on earth and be with Meg I remember that always bothered me because I thought there is no way Zeus who's supposed to be this cranky almost like overlord type figure is gonna be like sure no problem you stay on earth with your love so as much as I loved Meg I thought there is no way he would allow this to happen so in the book he says no you're staying here on Mount Olympus. And if Meg wants to be with Herc, she has to prove that she is worthy of becoming a god. And um, Zeus's wife, Hera, sends her on an epic Greek 
quest. We get to see a lot of familiar characters from the movie. We get to see this whole new twist um, and get to just see Meg be this badass. And I just loved writing Meg and spending so much time in this world and spending time in the underworld with Hades. And it was just so much fun. And I wrote it during lockdown in the spring and it was such a nice release and break from reality to be writing about Hades and the underworld and Greek myths. That's so cool. Big Disney fan over here. Writing the Twisted Tales must be so fun. My sisters and I talk all the time about which classic Disney movie has the best music. And there are a lot of votes in my family for Hercules. We have a lot of Hercules fans in my house, so I'm going to have to pass your book on to them so they can read it. Listeners, if you're listening in real time, we're actually going to be giving away some copies of Jen's Frozen Twisted Tale over on my Instagram, on the SSR Pod Instagram this week, Conceal Don't Feel. So be on the lookout for that. Generally, I'm just very interested in these Twisted Tales. I'm going to be checking them out. Listeners, I'll include links to all of them in the show notes for this episode, as well as links to Jen's recommendations. And then again, maybe I won't. All those links will also be in our bookshop.org storefront. Jen, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Congratulations on the new book. It was so fun getting to know you and taking this wild ride through another Judy Bloom novel with you. So much fun spending an hour with you talking about our queen, Judy. So thank you so much for having me. Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.